0: So, today we have with us a man that has a very, very interesting kind of niche and strategy that I am very, very excited to talk about um, because I think it's very profitable, which is one of the things we talk about here at Street Smart Success. Above and beyond that, uh, he is a, a CEO, but a combat veteran to boot, uh, which warrants immense respect. Also, a serial entrepreneur, he is currently the CEO of Wild Mountain Capital. He is Samuel Sells. Samuel, welcome back to Street Smart Success.
1: Hey, I, I really appreciate it, Roger. Thank you so much. It's
0: yeah, good to you talk got to you again. It. Yeah, you too. You know, the, the, there's good and bad news for me. In when I arrive at my early stages of senility, and the um, the bad news is that I forget things. So a lot of what we discussed. Uh, not all of it, I have already forgotten, but but the good news <laughs> is, is that it's going to be all new to me and exciting because <laughs> I forgot a lot. But uh, yes, anyway, okay. n- yeah, no, you were an interesting cat. I remember that. So uh, I'm going to stick to the same format from the last time. And for the listener's sake, first of all, can I call you Sam or is it Samuel? Sam is just fine. All right, Sam. So we, we did a recording for uh, however long it was. And then the production quality was so poor, we couldn't even get it released. So he, Sam, Sam's been cool enough to come back and redo this. Um, yeah. so for the heck of it, maybe you recall, I just asked the simple stuff is like, where did you guys start? Where did you start? I remember, I think it was a rural background, but maybe I'm wrong. Where yeah. were you born and raised and what were all the circumstances?
1: Yeah. So my brother and I like to say that we're uh, red mud babies from Oklahoma, which just means that we were born, uh, in central, you know, born and raised in central and Eastern Oklahoma where there's a lot of mud. So we were always getting, you know, dirty, but, uh, you know, just grew up poor, had a wonderful life because we had great parents and enjoyed, you know, playing outside and doing stuff and. Didn't really know that we were poor until you go to school and people start making fun of you for your clothes. And, you know, the most judgmental people on the planet are certainly in middle school and high school. And that's when you're like, huh. But fortunately, it was the 80s. So holes in the jeans and all that was cool. We're like, yeah, it's it's because we wore them out, not because we bought them like this. Wow. Uh,
0: first of all, I didn't think I was poor where I grew up. And we we weren't poor, but because of circumstances in my family, we had less money than everybody around us. And uh, mm-hmm. so I was wearing uncool clothes because we couldn't afford new ones. And I took some heat. And yeah. then um, I, before I started this podcast with you, about a half hour ago, I was talking to a guy I grew up with, and I've known him since I was was I'd say 5 years old but even younger and we were talking about junior and high and high school and how um, frankly miserable it was but that that's a that's a, a digression <laughs> so apparently you and I have experienced similar things um yeah. what was the path to the military
1: Yeah uh, so I, after my mission I or sorry after I graduated high school I worked at a pawn shop for a little bit very interesting <laughs> and uh, and then I went out on a mission for my church when I got back from that uh, I just thought, okay, so in my life, I decided I wanted to do three main things. One was serve God, One was serve my country and then serve my fellow man. And, you know, those were kind of like the three overarching principles of my life that I wanted to do. And I got back and I was like, Well, I really like real estate. So I need to go and learn how to do real estate. So I got into construction, remodeling homes as an electrician. Uh, then I got into industrial construction, building a big power plant and then moved out of that into you know, fix and flip kind of scenarios where I was working before others who were doing it, but I was doing all the construction work with a small team. And from there, I just realized that I was never going to be able to go get my college degree, never be going to be able to go and serve uh, my fellow man so, or that way. So I decided to, well, let's go ahead and serve my country. And I joined the military. I became a firefighter station in uh, Germany. And, um, you know, that was the beginning of the military career that span you know, two decades, and then, uh, or almost two decades, and then I went from there to after in Germany. Went to Idaho uh, was my next duty location, and there we started flipping homes on our off days um, with a friend of mine. Um, and then I started flipping homes on my own, and that was early two thousands. Made it through the the crash just fine because we were buying homes at fifty grand a piece and selling them for one twenty. So the crash happened and we went from selling them at 120 to selling them at 100. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. <laughs> so <laughs> we're still making money, you know? How many houses do you think you flipped? I think I've only flipped probably 14 or 15. Um, it's hard to do a lot of them when you're working full time. Um, and so we were doing, we do like one or two at a time. Um, and then I kept getting transferred. And so when I'd get transferred, like to Massachusetts, we flipped a house there and then I was still doing homes at San Antonio. And it was really hard to scale in doing that stuff. You just end up working every off day, all day long, every weekend when you're doing it yourself. And uh, it's great if you have the funds to hire other people to do it. Now I know way better tricks on how to get funding for construction crews and everything else. So very, very little money comes out of the pocket. Got it, got it. I did not know how to do that back then. I understand. Um,
0: remind me where you did your mission. I did, uh, I w- Idaho was actually where
1: my mission was. <laughs> got it.
0: In, is my memory uh, failing me when I ask you if you were over in Iraq or Afghanistan?
1: I was in Afghanistan. So I was in the north part of the country, uh, re- responsible for medical logistics. I was a combat advisor. Embedded with Afghans living on an Afghan army base, traveled all over the northern half of the country, went down to Kabul a bunch of times and other places, but just by road, by helicopter, aircraft, whatever. Traveled all over Ring Road, all over North Afghanistan, working with Afghans. Border patrol, border, or the police, about the least well equipped, the least sophisticated. Afghans who were supported by the government. That's who we were working with.
0: Were, were there a lot of concentration of Taliban north or was that, are they more concentrated in the south and southeast near like Kandahar?
1: Yeah. So at that time when I was there in 2011-12, they were, um, the Northern Alliance had pushed them down south. And, uh, but it was good. Like I got to go and walk the places where the war started uh, camp, uh, span went to the, uh, yeah, uh, we could talk about that for a while, but, you know, I walked a lot of the similar places that the guys, the horse soldiers went through and, and did. And in fact, I had one of those horse soldiers was one of my teammates and it was cool talking about when he first got in there and, you know, riding horses with wooden saddles and all, all kinds of stuff that, you know, he did. So we got to spend a lot of time, about six months together before one of us transferred out, but yeah, it was a good time. It, it was it's absolutely
0: gorgeous right is because that's that's it's beautiful here we're yeah and yeah, in, in, in the north is mountainous correct
1: it is it's, it's beautiful country i've flown over so much of it even got up into Badakhshan and shere khan with the shere khan where you know if you've seen the jungle book that's where that character comes from shere khan an old warlord that lived there but just Gorgeous country, beautiful rivers, beautiful mountains. It's all in governance, really. It's in the governance of the country. is so incredibly corrupt, lack of culture, lack of um, connection with each other. And if you, if you just don't respect other people, you don't take care of other people, you don't take care of your poor, you don't uh, educate, you don't do anything other than try to self-preserve, um, then you get a country like Afghanistan. Wow, man, those those are some heavy words right there. Where do you, this is an aside, where do you live now? Right now we live in San Antonio. Our office is in New Braunfels, Texas, which is just in between San Antonio and Austin. It's my favorite little town in Texas, full of rivers that you can tube and float and kayak and stand up board. just beautiful. And some of the best food in Texas is here in between San Antonio and Austin. If you come into Austin for food, go south and get towards San Antonio. It's a great way to gain weight, but just enjoy the process.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when you were saying it's your favorite little town with all with amazing food and kayaking and rivers, I thought you were talking specifically about New Braunfels or... Yeah, you New Braunfels about San... for sure.
1: New okay. Braunfels well, for that's... sure. Yeah. I mean, San Antonio has that and so does uh, Austin, but it's just the the old German vibe and music and everything else. A lot of that's getting... Uh, Austin's getting so expensive that a lot of the musicians are moving out because they can't afford it. I see.
0: Got it. There's a tip right there. So one of these days I'm going to have to make it there just based on what you just said. <laughs> so you were so your specialty within construction, uh, you started off as an electrician? Yes. And did then you ultimately, just by virtue of doing flips and working for other people, did you learn other trades as well? Or, I mean, are you proficient at at plumbing and, you know, framing and hanging drywall or what's your competence in construction at this point?
1: Yeah. so I did, uh, I apprenticed as an electrician for a couple of years and we would do, I was on a crew that was doing about one house a day. So every day we would come in and, and, uh, on a military compound, we'd rip out drywall and put in all, rip out all the old, uh, aluminum wiring and put in all new electrical wiring wire up the entire house and then on a the finish in would come in and we'd do about two houses a day finishing with uh, um, hanging fans and everything else so I got to where I'd hang a fan in 20 minutes and you know lights in 10 and we we're just churning through these houses so I know I can wire a house inside and out all day long in my mind I know how to do it all because um, we've just done so many but Uh, I got with another crew who was a very high-end, very proficient painter. So he did faux painting, which was really popular for a certain period of time. But we were doing, um, just the three of us were renovating these homes and they would get posted in like country living and it would show this beautiful home, beautiful painting and, and everything else. And we did that. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. So trim, painting. You know, and then I started my own construction company and we were doing framing and other things. And that was a total disaster because we just couldn't get the momentum up to the pay and it just didn't work out. But, uh, you know, failures as an entrepreneur are just, you know, one notch under your belt to say, okay, we don't do it that way. We're going to do something different. And so, yeah, I'm I'm pretty proficient um, in residential construction and, you know, inside now. But what's great is we have our own development company. And my dad runs that company. He worked in commercial construction for 30 years, commercial and industrial construction. Um, So big stuff, roads, bridges, tall buildings, commercial assets. He worked for Zachary, which is one of the largest private construction companies in the nation. Uh, He worked for some bigger international firms. Um, And so his, his life has been construction forever. And so he runs our construction company, and it's great because we renovate units between $2,000 and $7,000 a unit less than anything we've ever had any other general contractor quote us. And our guys renovate between three to five units a week per property, and it's nice. They do a great job. Interesting.
0: Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the US. If you want a roll your sleeves up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Okay. And so, which leads me kind of to the question, which is why I've been asking these these questions, is that you are really focused on heavy value add, C-class, being on your website, you could even say some of it's D plus, and you know, which takes guts, right, to do that. And so, you <laughs> Brave know. Brave or stupid, yeah. <laughs> bro, And this is what we <laughs> talked about last time. It's all coming back to me. But I mean, it seems to be, to be kind of smart because I'm just projecting here, but I, I'm thinking, you know, maybe that's just where the value is, uh, in the profitability is. But you know, you've seen, you've done high end stuff and you've done, you know, C class and you've done pretty much the full gamut. How do you arrive at the, at what exactly you're doing now? How did you get to that strategy and how would you define the strategy and how did you get to it?
1: Yeah. So. It's kind of an interesting road. So, you know, working with Afghans, working with other foreign governments, you know, I got my master's degree in global health. I was a healthcare administrator for a long time, just focused on international health, uh, international engagements where we were working with foreign militaries, foreign governments, foreign hospitals, you know hospitals, trying to help them build sustainable systems and spending so much time in the poorest countries in the world, literally like Chad and Afghanistan and, and some of these others are just incredibly poor. Liberia, just incredibly poor. Senegal is not quite as poor, but you get out of the city and it's very poor. Mauritania, these places like, you know, why is it that they can't get out? Well, it's a couple of reasons, you know, it's not because their healthcare system, it's because of their governance, the governance of the country, um, its incentives, how incentives are aligned. And and what I found out, uh, kind of stumbled upon or felt inspired uh, working with one uh, particular leader is, uh, you know, sitting there six years, Americans and uh, Canadians have been spending, working with this guy, trying to get him to support his hospitals and clinics beneath him, like this, the 10 or 12 that he had beneath him. And it dawned on me one day that his incentives weren't aligned. And so once I, realized that I helped share the vision to him of how if he supports his crews and he now is over so many million dollars worth of, peop- of equipment, so many million dollars worth of training and so many people. And that means he's going to get he has to get a you know pay raise. And you know he's got to grow up in his rank because people of his rank currently aren't over that much stuff. So naturally, he has to go up in rank and he can go and articulate that. Hey, I'm in charge of all these people. My rank needs to be higher and so he can get a raise. And so once he got the incentive, he understood it like changed overnight. All of a sudden, all these clinics started getting all their, their equipment they were supposed to have. The training for medics was coming in, nurse techs and all, all this stuff. And once I learned that early on in, in uh, 2012, Like, since then, I used that every single place we went. And it would be interesting to see, like, Americans or foreigners would come in, nonprofit and they would buy super expensive stuff. And I'm like, we're in Jamina Chad, why are you buying a $50,000 super cool whiz-bang hospital bed for a clinic that has power two hours a day and is full of dust? and that thing's just gonna break. Why are we doing that? It's a waste of money. So, and now that I mean, it sits in a, in a closet somewhere cause they don't know how to use it anyways. So as soon as Americans leave or whoever, they're like, what? don't give me this. So long story short, I just, it came back to like, how do I drive the highest impact I can possibly have? How do I change my own life, my family's life? And then how do I impact and change other lives? It's not through building hospitals. There's so many hospitals in America. Where is it really at? Well, it's in the home. And how can I change homes? How can I impact homes? Well, we gotta, we can do that, we can rehabilitate, we can do the flip kind of thing, but with apartment complexes and mobile home parks. But we have to have incentives that are aligned to show investors that you can make money helping other people, lifting them out of this stuff by renovating these apartments and good governance and good social programs and et cetera. So now we're doing it and it and it makes money. And it's great because we have all these properties now that are about to get either refinanced or sold. And the return on investment is, is finally showing because it takes time to get through the first year or two of heavy lift.
0: Yeah, when did you start acquiring the, the multifamily properties and how many do you have at this point?
1: We closed on our first property, I think December 30th of 2018. And then we bought nine more in, in 2019. Uh, one in 2020, and then another ten in 2021. One now, so we've we've offloaded some. Uh, we have now 2021 20, properties um, altogether. Uh, 20 properties altogether, and it's just been uh, a crazy ride. So we're reducing <laughs> the amount of properties we buy now. We're just buying much larger properties, uh, much more focused. We had stuff in six states. We're moving down to just a couple of states. That way, we can really be more effective on the development side. Where we're sending crews four or five states away to get things done, we have them centralized and and so forth. And we got we don't have to deal with weird laws like Tennessee has some weird laws. Arkansas like has no laws. Um, so the city, you know, can do whatever they want, and that that gets weird sometimes. And then you know, it's just. Uh, It's just interesting. So we're it's easier to operate if we're focused in a couple of states right now for these heavy lifts. So which states are you going to be in? Texas and Oklahoma. Why is that what I was thinking?
0: Okay, so you're learning, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then how do you deal with management on these properties? How do you manage them?
1: Yeah, so we try third party managers. It never worked out because third party management companies want just like what everybody else wants, right? It's easy. And if, if they can't do an easy button, you know, they just don't want to do it. And if you're doing a heavy lift on a project, there's no easy button period, at least not for the operators uh, or the managers. And so we built our own management company. I think we have like 40 employees now in that company and they know how to work with housing authorities. They know how to work with HUD. They know how to work with charities, local charities, nonprofits. Um, every type of religious group you can think of, um, from Islamic to Christian to you know, anybody else that, that supports their constituents or, or their members of their community. Um, and, and we're happy to work with them. As long as the person who's living in the apartments um, can abide by the rules and not make the place unsafe, they're welcome to stay there. Um, you just you know, you just got to abide by the rules. And our rules aren't terrible. You know, treat other people with respect. You know, those types of things. And the communities, if you make the community safe and clean, it becomes prosperous. And that on the financial side, that means less turnover. Rents do typically go up because we're creating much more value. But to the resident, the real cost is less because now they have high speed internet. Now they have washer and dryer in their unit instead of having to go downtown and spend $200 a month on on that and spend eight or, you know, eight or 10 hours washing clothes each month because I got three kids. Do you then have a, an employee of
0: yours in each complex that you own and are they living on the premise and they live in a unit and then manage from there? or How does that all work?
1: Yeah, we found that that works out really the best. Um, It's nice when you have 150 unit or 150 doors or more at a property because that property will support having staff. On site, that's why we stick now with only larger complexes. The smaller places, it becomes a little bit of a challenge to keep those people paid, and they are—they just feel a little less incentivized um, to do a good job. And so that's been a little bit of a struggle with the smaller places.
0: I get it. You know, look—if it's twenty units and and you've got you're giving away one unit, I mean that's five percent of revenue that you're giving up uh and you know once you're above break even there's a sort of, like the incremental units are that much more profitable so i could see that yeah. um and then with with the construction then and you guys you know like you said you're you're consolidating down from 6 to 2 states would you use your employees and just they were kind of itinerant and they would go to, for example, Tennessee or Arkansas, but they were all your employees or, or would you then do that and have kind of hybrid and then hire local subs or were they all your employees?
1: Yeah, so a hybrid approach. So all the interior innovations we would do with the the exception of anything that has to be done by a license, a local licensed professional. So plumbing, super easy to do, but it's always a licensed professional. And we've had some disasters by local licensed professionals that uh, you know, ultimately we're like, we'll just fix it ourselves and get it fixed and, and move on because it's super easy to get that stuff fixed. But licensed professionals for HVAC and so forth. So in Texas, we have all those people on staff, uh, but anywhere outside of Texas, we don't have licensed professionals. And so we'll hire local subs to do that. That's usually our single most expensive expense because um, those the subcontractors now licensed prof- professionals are incredibly expensive right now.
0: Yeah, exactly. With uh, wages going way up and labor shortage and what and, and what have you. So Sam, how do you find deals?
1: Yeah, so we have a, a pretty good broker network. Um, brokers who send us deals on market, off market. Some people say you owe. We only buy off market deals, and I we go well. Oh, that's a great way to overpay, especially nowadays, because off-market is coming to you. Now we had a deal come to us at 16 million and went onto the market. It came, The market really, it was like, no, we're not taking it at 16 million. They're going to take it at 14. Uh, and then people kept backing out. And so now we have them at 12 million, uh, which is where we wanted them in the first place, because that's where we thought the property was worth. It's just so poorly managed by you know people out in New York. It's so, I mean, how do you manage a, a heavy, value add from across the country and you don't have your own development company, you don't have your own property management company. It's it's impossible.
0: Yeah. The answer to your question is I have no idea. I've wondered the same thing myself. And yeah, then what kind do of it. finance? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. What are you what are you guys doing for financing and kind of how are you viewing the world in terms of increasing interest rates and kind of where the rubber is going to meet the road there?
1: Yeah. And so, um, Increased interest rates, of course, drop prices uh, significantly. At the end of the day, it's about profits. So whether the price is high and the interest is ro- low or the price is low and the interest is high um, is really about what what are you generating off the property that uh, delivers pro- uh, profits to your investors and to yourself. Um, so we're we underwrite very heavily. We, we go through, I don't know, 100 deals a week when we're in acquisition mode. Uh, right now, we're um, working on closing a property here the next month. It's a uh, 506c Reg D offering. So it's open to accredited investors only. If anyone's interested, please reach out um, and I can send that to you. We're working with a different sponsor who's the lead on that one. Uh, but we're helping him take that down. I have started a coaching course where we help people uh, take the next step in their syndication. So this guy had only ever acquired a 22 unit apartment complex. And now we're helping him take down 157 unit apartment complex, and it's way bigger than he thought he could do. Um, But we're walking it, walking the dog with him all the way through the process of raising the five million dollars in capital and and everything else, because it's super hard to do this business alone. I tried it at the beginning. I made a crap ton of mistakes. You really need good partners. And so uh, we started a, a coaching program just to help people take the next step and launch their syndication company, whether it's from zero or if they want to start learning how to move from being a capital raiser over to, to um, operating, which is um, where we're at. Or if they want to move from operating to working with institutional partners, which we've also done. Um, those are the three major transition points in syndication. Um, and when you can work with uh, institutional investors where they're going to write a $20 million check, a single $20 million check, and you're going to go buy the property with it. Um, it's a different game than typical syndication. So um, we've done that before. Our institutional partner loves us. We are doing great on that project, way better than we expected, which is always good news. Um, even in this downturn, we're still doing fantastic. And it's those things are super difficult unless you have somebody there to help you through it. On the deal you were talking about where you're working with another sponsor, how did you meet that sponsor? Uh, we met through a mastermind. And so I I'm in a couple of different masterminds. Uh, most people in the masterminds that I'm in have not done. They're just starting, or they're they've only done a, a few deals or a couple of deals. So, we talked together about doing a small deal a long time ago, and then we moved on to bigger deals and. And uh, he's, he's still working a full time job. And he made the complaint, you know, Sam, I've been doing this now for a couple of years and I'm still working a full time job. And I was like, well, dude, let me help you <laughs> here. Let's close this deal. You'll get 150 grand at closing um, and you'll make, you know, three or four grand a month, not counting whatever the proceeds are. And this is still a heavy value add. So this is this will change your life.
0: You know, you're going to bring the capital to that deal through through your investors,
1: I'm going to help him raise the capital. So help him build out his systems so he can raise five million dollars at a time. And we're going to bring in other co-sponsors who are willing to work uh, with him to do the deal And in those in those people will then also bring money to the table they'll bring money to the table. So co-sponsors, it'll bring a million dollars, half a million dollars. Some of them are my coaching students, and this will be like their first capital raise. So I expect they'll bring a 100 or 200 grand to the table. And then they'll have to, they're going to learn how to do investor relations afterwards and support the deal so that we meet the security exchange commission requirements of taking on roles in the deal, because it takes a lot of hands to make these deals successful. And so we want to help people and train them to make sure that they are providing value to the deal. And look, you can definitely retire rich and you can retire early and you can do this, but you do need to actually work. And it can be a couple hours a week. It doesn't. It's not much, but you just need to do something. And it can be just a couple hours a month depending on the deal and what your, what your role is. Um, but you will, as a co-sponsor, you definitely have a responsibility to your investors because you're, their, inve- your, their investors believe in them and trust them to invest wisely. Um,
0: Where, where's the property, by the way, this one deal? Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. How many units? 157. Would
1: it have made sense to bring your institutional partner into that? It's 154 units. Uh, we did talk to an institutional partner about it because they wanted to do the deal with us. We told them no because it's smaller and we really want to take this opportunity to educate another lead sponsor. Something I got it. yeah. The
0: institutional partner that you've done uh deals with in the past, uh, what's the nature? Is, is that a family office? Is it a is it um a fund? Is it private equity? What how would you describe it?
1: Yeah, this was uh part of their seventh fund. Uh, the seventh fund was 150 million. Uh, we're just at the very end of their seventh fund, and their eighth fund was 250 million. Their multi-billion-dollar company out of California was great. About them is that they do invest in Class C properties. They do invest just like a lot of these guys. They find really good operators um, and invest in the operator and in the property, and then they sit back and they do asset management. So we talk with them twice a week. And they're on the ball with my asset manager and our property manager and our development crew. And one of the reasons they really loved us is because we were vertically integrated and controlled the entire process.
0: Well, my understanding is is institutional partners, not, maybe not always, but require vertical integration.
1: Not always, but the it's a uh, it's interesting because when I raise from retail equity, they're like, oh, well, we want we want somebody with a third party. Property manager, I'm like, well, you can go that route. You're you're going to pay more money, um, and institutions know this. this. Is how they got. That's why they're worth billions of dollars because they know that vertical integration saves money. It just does, and you get more control of the property. You get more control over the results of the property, and so a lot of syndicators don't do that because their their business model is just a little bit different. Um, they want to focus less on operations, more on capital raising. However, you want to do it, there's no limit to the to the way that you do it, as long as it's within the bounds of the law. Sam, you're condensing down,
0: and you're obviously kind of getting traction quickly as you're refining what you're doing. You're condensing down from six to two states, and you're also realize that you know there's more economies in um, uh, larger uh, properties. So. My question is, for the properties that are not in Texas and Oklahoma and and even for the ones that are currently in Texas and Oklahoma, but let's say they're fewer than 50 property, 50 units per se, are you trying to pretty much sell that portfolio off and reposition the um, equity into bigger deals in those two states as we speak?
1: Yeah, that's it. So I have eight mobile home parks on the market right now for sale. We had a ground up development for uh, storage complex that we triple net leased over to an operator uh, who's doing a great job, by the way. We also have another mobile home park that we triple net leased, master leased over to another operator. Master leases are fantastic, uh, by the way. It's a great way to buy properties without a lot of money down. And anyhow, so then there is also um, we have two mobile home parks that are still in development with new homes coming in and and construction. And once those are done, then we'll sell those off. The apartment complexes that we have that are, I mean, they're all 50 units to 75 units. And we have one that's 245 units that's hitting the market right now. It was 60% occupied. It's now, I think, just shy of 90% occupied. It'll hit 95% occupied probably next month as we've finished up 101 units that were down when we bought it remarkable change to that property and remarkable change in value to that property too added about 4 to 5 million in value in a year it's fantastic you know
0: inadvertently your uh you know your timing has been impeccable too because uh, it just has so i mean i'm being maybe a little bit presumptuous but it sounds like uh you know your your timeline has been accelerated for you where you've did some heavy lift on some you know deep value add. And maybe maybe you thought, I don't know what you thought, but you know, you could have thought maybe hey, there's are five to seven year hold or three years. But really in yeah. a couple of years you're being being able to to, you know, monetize these properties and then go where you know you you want to be really pretty darn quick.
1: Yeah, the the challenge lately has been um selling the properties is getting closer. So we've had a lot of properties get under contract and then it's fallen through because the Buyers couldn't secure financing because the market keeps changing, or a lot of new guys in the marketplace they get they get suckered by mortgage brokers who really, without them knowing it they they stack on all these fees and and everything else, and then they go and try and sell it to a or get a lender. And the lender will say, "Yeah, fine, we'll do the deal." And then, as they get down the road, the lender's like, mm, "This is too much. We're not going to do the deal." And so then it falls apart because the broker they chose was just kind of a a shyster, really, really trying to pad their own pockets, and it, it screws over the syndicator. Um, so we've seen that happen a couple of times. It happened to us a while back. I, in general, I don't like mortgage brokers. Sorry, guys. We just. I've had so many bad experiences and I keep seeing it happen, particularly with newer uh real estate or commercial real estate investors. And so we started our own mortgage uh brokerage because I hired a guy out of that system who was super honest and he's lost deals because he's like, hey, go with this guy because they're gonna get you a better deal. I'm I'm out of this, you know. And so we we hired him. He was you know, Colliers debt and equity broker for ten years. You know, institutional player knows this game inside and out. And now we've been brokering other people's deals, and it's great because it's like this deal isn't going to work. We just underwrote it, it's not going to work. You guys need to go back and and re you know, renegotiate a drop in, in price to this. And then if you do that, we'll get you that and everything else. And you know, buyers syndicators are like, oh, I, I I can do that. I'm like, yeah, do that. This is why. And then they go back, get that get a trice, uh price reduction, and come back and. Now we, you know, now we got a deal. Um, and now we can, you know, we can land debt and equity. And, and if you're looking for institutional equity and in you're a player, then we can help you do that. In addition
0: to that part of the equation, the, uh, you know, the uh, debt part of it, if you just kind of look back over the last handful of years, what would you say are the kind of the key things that you've learned?
1: The marketplace is full of lenders. Some of them are terrible. I mean, just terrible. The marketplace is full of mortgage brokers because they look at it like easy money and they look at you like a sucker. And if you're ever curious about what's happening, I can sit you down and talk to you about how they are padding their pockets. They're getting, you know, the lender's telling them it's a 5% rate. They're telling you it's a 5.5% rate. And the mortgage broker's getting a spread on the on the rate, right? Um, And if you would have gone to somebody else like us, we wouldn't have done a spread. There's no spread. All right, we're only going to charge you the 1% fee or one and a half or half a percent. Depends on what size the deal is. Bigger is going to be less. We're not going to charge you an exit fee and you're not going to pay us a single penny until the deal closes with our debt. Uh, and so I closed a deal where the mortgage broker brought us debt and it was terrible. I mean, it's the worst thing I've ever seen ever. Our equity partner walked away because he's like, I've never seen debt this bad. And so we fired them, but because we had already signed a loan agreement with them, we had to pay them at closing and they brought no debt. And when we sell the property, we have to pay them again. Stupid, right? That sounds
0: excruciating.
1: It's excruciating because because I was dumb and didn't know better. I signed this agreement that is very typical in the mortgage broker's world. So I've learned a ton. There are huge banks out there that will give you incredible rates, but they're harder on the brokers. So brokers won't necessarily go to them. So we closed the deal at three and a half percent interest in March. The rates have gone up. So now we're paying four and a half percent interest on a class C heavy value add. And they funded all of the capex.
0: Wow.
1: You go to a broker right now, they're going to tell you six and a half, seven percent. They're not going to work with these big banks. That will do this. very few of them. Will
0: are you Are you looking to do fixed or floating, or or are you still looking at bridge product? What are you What are you doing looking forward?
1: We're mainly bridge products. Uh, we're also looking at doing cash deals where we just buy a, a complex in cash. Some a complex that's in big time distress um, and that we can pick up for a significant discount by closing in thirty days or less. But you know, you need eleven million dollars in in the pocket to do that. And so we you know work with investors who have that kind of capital and who are willing to go through a heavy lift where we buy it at a a community at half price or close to half price and capture you know if we can make another four or five million dollars in a year plus dramatically improve the lives of 300 people or 400 people in the process i mean that's that's good news all day long hard to argue
0: with that well I'm so glad that you and I reconvened, it's weird, but I almost feel as though you've learned a lot just in the last three or four months or whenever we spoke last, it's pretty impressive. Maybe even more than that, the way time goes by. So last and easiest question answers, how does one get a hold of you, Sam?
1: Yeah, reach out to me. Uh, my email address is sam at wildmountaincapital.com. Uh, feel free if you're interested in the coaching program or just learning more, we have syndication launch. Uh, which is actually launching here in October. Um, we have a couple dozen courses in there that you can get access to and, and go through what all this stuff means. And then like things like how not to go bankrupt and nobody talks about like this is, yeah, you know, there's real estate. It's a fantastic way to make a ton of money, but you make one mistake, um, in, in forgetting, you know, rule number one, cash flow. If you, if you forget that, um, then you can go bankrupt and lots of commercial companies do go bankrupt and, You know, it's just, everybody wants to talk about all the good stuff. And we certainly talk about the good stuff. This is how you make money. This is where you go. This is who you use. But you also need to talk about, hey, these are the things you can do that'll ruin your life. And so don't do these things. And you need to know about them. People don't
0: know this because we've been on a bull run for a decade. But there are graveyards littered with bodies of uh, people that have lost their fortune in real estate. People People don't know this. I know it because I'm an old guy, but uh, yeah. anyway, well, Sam, I look forward to doing this again, maybe in six to nine months and catching up again. Um, yeah. This has been absolutely fantastic. And I'm so glad we eventually closed the loop here. The recording quality has been fantastic and I'll send it to you.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Roger. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun call again. Great to speak with you.
0: Yep. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>